Hello and welcome to Exploring Global Problems, a podcast where we talk to academics from Swansea University whose groundbreaking research is tackling global challenges, from health innovation to sustainable futures and the environment, from digital technologies to clean energy. My name is Sam Blacksland and today I'm joined by Professor Gareth Jenkins, Associate Dean for Research, Innovation and Impact at Swansea. Gareth's research explores how DNA gets mutated and how that can increase cancer risks. He is the chair of the UK government's Committee on Mutagenicity, the president of the UK Environmental Mutagen Society, and was recently elected president of the International Association for Environmental Mutagenesis and Genomic Societies. Gareth, welcome to Exploring Global Problems. Thank you very much. To start, can you just give us an overview of what your research and what all these long words that are very very hard to (laughs) pronounce is, is all about? Yeah, so my research focuses on how DNA gets mutated and what the consequence for that is for human health, I suppose. A lot of this involves understanding how we can measure those mutations in DNA and then uh, applying that to understand what the association between those mutations is and possibly human disease going forward, such as such as cancer. Great. And you use blood to measure this in some ways, don't you, too? Yeah, so I've I've um, had a long-standing interest in uh, a, a type of esophageal cancer mm-hmm. uh, called esophageal adenocarcinoma. And for many years, we were interested in collecting tissue samples with con- in conjunction with clinicians from the hospitals in the area, and then studying different things within the tissue samples. The problem with that is it's quite an in- an invasive sort of procedure to get a biopsy from somebody during endoscopy, and so there's a lot of interest these days in moving to what are termed liquid biopsies. So actually using blood or urine or some other body fluid to understand some of the molecular changes like DNA mutations and how they might have a useful um, aspect to understand how esophageal cancer or any other kind of cancer or any other kind of disease may, may, may form. Great. And I guess just from first principles, this is all very important because um, cancer affects so many people and you're trying to do what to change that? Yeah, so I think um, <clears throat> recent figures have suggested that uh, the cancer is going to affect one in two of us, so 50% of the population are going to get cancer at some stage. And I think the the current aim is to try and detect it earlier, introduce new treatments and manage cancer. So people uh, might be diagnosed with cancer, but they will uh, live long lives, healthy lives, despite that, by having an earlier diagnosis and being open to then having uh, more and more um, novel treatments that are that are that are, that are going to be available in the future. That's that's a huge figure, isn't it? That one in that one in two. I assume that encompasses some people who might die. I don't know some older people who, who have prostate cancer when they die, etc. But I mean, the number of people who actually are very directly affected by this is still like in terms of percentage, it's it, it's it's massive. Yeah, well, if you imagine, well, I think if you ask any of your listeners, then everybody knows people who mm-hmm. have had cancer have died from cancer because it is so common, it's so widespread. Every time someone is diagnosed with cancer, it affects their whole family, all of their friends and communities. So it's a it's a global problem for everybody because of the scale of the numbers of people who are getting cancer. And I think there's, there's there are two types of people who are getting cancer. There are the people who who are you know quite elderly they're diagnosed with cancer and there's some treatment available but you know unfortunately there's there's very little that can be done and those people will uh, unfortunately die from those cancers but there are plenty of people who are getting cancer at a younger age in their 50s or even younger um and those people if they had had a earlier diagnosis could have probably had a better prognosis because 
the opportunities to do something in terms of treatment, in terms of surgery, in terms of new therapies would have been there for them. But uh, um, the late diagnosis was a huge problem for them. So early diagnosis is probably the holy grail in cancer research. Yeah, and I, I find that interesting because I'm, I'm a historian, so I think about it kind of um, historically. And, you know, when, when the National Health Service was set up, for example, most people died of heart attacks and, and, and strokes. But now people are dying of kind of older people's diseases. Mm. But cancer isn't always affecting older people, is it? It can, can get younger people. And I suppose that must be one of the driving motives for you. It's not, it's not about people who are in their 90s necessarily who've had a very good life. It's about people who, must, who might be younger and you can give them a better quality of life. Yeah, no, I think cancer is um, unfortunately a problem of our own making because we have been very successful at yeah. treating communicable, communicative diseases. So infections and other things, people used to die of all kinds of different infections before antibiotics were around. A lot of people died of cardiovascular disease 100 years ago. Uh, that is, you know, there's still people who have cardiovascular disease, but it's better managed. And so every time you are saving people through advances in medical technology, you're allowing them to grow into older age. And unfortunately, cancer is sort of the thing that catches up with people in the end because it's a disease mainly of, of old age. But there are plenty of people who who um, get cancer in, in their middle ages. Yeah. And it's those people who probably with earlier detection could um, could benefit enormously from a, from having a longer lifespan. Now, you talked about the challenges in uh, detection. And how, in terms of how cancer is detected, how has that changed over time? Yeah, so I think that there have been huge advances in um, in imaging technologies and other kinds of technologies which have uh, allowed us to detect cancer at an earlier stage. Uh, but it's often coupled to this biopsying that you have to get the you, you, you have to you have to get a biopsy because the gold standard way of detecting cancer is a bit of tissue sitting on a pathologist's microscope stage and for the pathologist to say yes this is this is cancer that's still the mainstay of of detection but there are modalities new approaches around different imaging approaches which are becoming more and more um sophisticated and there's a lot of molecular sort of um uh, research going on in in, in terms of identifying things called biomarkers. So a biomarker is a biological event, a change in a level of a biomolecule which is linked to a disease. And if you can obtain the necessary tissues and couple that to really accurate biomarkers, then that can be really useful in 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 identifying early stage cancers or or even identifying precancerous conditions which have got a high risk of them becoming cancer. This is detecting the step before cancer. I think there's a this is where there's a lot of um, opportunity out there. That there's, there are many many types of cancer have a precancerous stage, and a lot of people with that precancerous condition um, won't develop cancer, and but a small percentage will. And so, if you can identify those small percent of the precancerous diseases which are going to get cancer and intervene there by surgery or through closer follow-up with those patients, that could have a huge impact on uh, cancer survival rates of individuals and therefore at a population level as well. Interesting. I was d doing some reading about you and your work. And I mean, I know you specialise in esophageal cancer mm. and there was some talk about sort of acid reflux. And mm. is, is that the kind of the area you're talking about here? That if someone is very acidic, then that might be a precursor to, to throat cancer or whatever. Yeah, th so there's actually a, a, um, a condition called Barrett's esophagus, which is formed by chronic reflux. So there's 
there's kind of a rule of 10% that if you are if you have chronic heartburn so acid reflux for decades mm. then there's a 10% chance on average that's that that you you will develop this Barrett's esophagus condition which is a a change in the esophageal tissue the tissue actually adapts to that sort of in harsh environment of acid reflux but unfortunately by um, adapting and changing the sort of structure, the architecture of the bottom of the esophagus, it puts it on a path for increased risk of esophageal cancer. And about 10% of people with Barrett's esophagus will get esophageal cancer then during their lifetime. So acid starts the process. It leads to this precancerous condition, Barrett's esophagus, and then about 10% of those go on to cancer. If we could understand who those 10% were, then NHS resources could be targeted to follow those people up and the people who are less likely to get cancer wouldn't have to um, undergo invasive endoscopy, which is what happens every two years at the moment. Mm. And I assume for, where in that case of uh, the, the acid and the esophageal cancer, there's probably a similar kind of things for lots of other cancers as well that you could do investigations into. Yeah, I think pretty much every cancer has a precancerous condition. Mm. There's this term dysplasia that's used a lot, so it just means that there's abnormalities in the the way the tissue is dividing and behaving which a pathologist brands as dysplasia and pretty much all cancers have this um dysplastic pre-cancerous um stage mm. just go back to first principles for a second if there are people like me listening who aren't particularly scientific i mean how uh, how do people get cancer what causes it yeah, so that's a good question. I think that cancer is largely a disease of DNA mutations, which mm. is why um, my fascination and many other people around the world's fascination with DNA mutations. So, so the mutations occur during our lifetime and they target particular genes which help control the growth of individual cells. And when those mutations happen to, to, to knock out those genes, to prevent those genes functioning, then that allows those cells to divide more rapidly and the more rapidly they divide the more likely they are to pick up another mutation because rapid rapidly dividing cells mutate more frequently and so you accelerate the chance then of of that becoming um a a a, a bunch of cells a, a clone which can um acquire all of the different hallmarks that are needed to become a full on um cancer got it and what uh, what things should people perhaps be avoiding if they you know, don't want to increase their risk of cancer? I mean, we hear this word carcinogenic or carcinogens, mm. but what are they and where do they come from? Yeah, so um, cancer is caused by mutation. So anything which causes mutations will naturally be a carcinogen, will cause cancer. The, the only question is whether the exposure to that that carcinogen is, is, is enough and over a sufficient period of time. Mm. Um, so the types of carcinogens that are classically used to describe this are things like cigarette smoke. So cigarette smoke contains thousands of chemicals which have been many, dozens and dozens, if not hundreds, have been classified as individual carcinogens. So you're breathing in a cocktail of carcinogens every time you, 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 you smoke a cigarette. And that increases enormously your risk of getting lung cancer and other cancers as well, because those carcinogens get into your body so they can cause bladder cancer, liver cancer and other cancers as well. Other carcinogens that are um, often used to, to, to describe this sort of process are things like UV light. So the, the more you sunbathe, UV light, mm. UV light has a fantastic ability to cause DNA mutations. So the more you sunbathe, 
the longer you sunbathe for in terms of the number of years you do it for, the greater the chance that some of those mutations in your skin cells will actually cause skin cancer to arise. Hence, so much more cases of skin cancer in Australia, for example. Yeah, so I think in Australia, you've got a, a sort of Western European population mm. who've moved out, particularly people who've emigrated from the UK, where we don't get a lot of sun, have moved to a country where there's 10 hours a day of really strong sunshine. And so there's been um, it's been a, an increase in the, in the, the rate of, of uh, skin cancer in Australia. But I, I think that the more, you know, some, one of the interests that I have is if we can understand these carcinogens more and we understand how they can cause those mutations and then increase risks of getting cancer, then we can do something about that in terms of prevention. So in Australia, they have the, I think it's called slip, slap, slop or something, yeah. the, the, the sort of public health uh, mantra that everyone should be wearing sun cream, they should be covering up, yeah. they should be getting out of the sun in the, the sort of midday sort of uh, periods. And that has come from the realisation of what was causing the skin cancer. Mm. You know, the, the smoking ban that, that was introduced uh, 15, 20 years ago had a huge uh, effect on on reducing the number of people who were smoking. People have alternatives now to smoking. So, so I think public health can step in when there is the science to identify this thing um, can cause cancer. And if you reduce exposure to this thing, you will reduce your, your opportunities of, of developing cancer. And, it, and even further than that, there are plenty of things that we can do to reduce our um, risk of getting cancer. So there are, as well as carcinogenic compounds and carcinogenic um, exposures like UV light, there are things which protect us. They protect our DNA uh, and so we can we can reduce our risks of getting cancer by um, increasing those protective factors and reducing at the same time our risk, uh, our exposure to the things which cause um, uh, an increased risk of cancer. So those protective factors mm -hmm. are things like fruits and vegetables, yeah. uh, healthy diet, exercise um, and, and many other things which are which are being understood now, better understood that actually protect our cells from the DNA damage which leads to the mutations, which leads to cancer. I mean, you mentioned food there in the context of fruit and veg, but is there clear evidence that there's carcinogens found in particular foodstuffs as well? Yeah, absolutely. So um, there are there are plenty of so so one of the so the one of the chemicals which is in cigarette smoke, benzoapyrene, is one of the carcinogens that's often used as an example of of a carcinogen in cigarette smoke. Actually, is present because it is formed by the by the burning process. So really char-grilled burnt meat can have benzopyrene present and it. it can also have chemicals called heterocyclic amines, which are another type of, um, of, of chemical formed by the burning process of meat. So heavily overcooked meat can, it can, produce, can, can contain these carcinogens, which can then increase risks of developing um, colorectal cancer, and there are other examples. We sometimes have um, contamination events in in some foods, which can which are contaminated with certain things. Not so much in Western Europe or in the West in general, but there are um, contamination events that occur in the developing countries, mm. which can produce chemical exposures and increase risks of certain compounds because the food quality isn't isn't perhaps as assessed quite as much. And this is going to be my next question because um, you know. We've spoken a little bit about Western countries, and obviously mentioned Australia, but you actually work uh, quite a lot with low or middle income countries, don't you? 
or so, that, that's your focus of your research. So we, we've uh, started a, a, a collaboration with um, with Bangladesh to begin with, um, and this has been partly because of uh, links between clinicians, uh, doctors here in, in, in Swansea who trained in Bangladesh and have uh, established a charity to to go back to, to Bangladesh and train Bangladeshi doctors in the latest um, medical procedures uh, that, that that can help treat uh, patients there. Because I think that they, um, they, they have a lot of the infrastructure and facilities for um, these advanced sort of processes, but they lack some of the training sometimes because they they don't they aren't fortunate enough to have uh, something like the NHS. So we've been doing some work with with Bangladesh trying to understand um, if we could help with understanding the exposures of the Bangladeshi population to certain types of carcinogen. And in Bangladesh, they have a particular problem because. Uh, you often hear on the news about the flooding, the monsoons, which affect Bangladesh. It's a very water-based country. There's lots of uh, wide river deltas. And unfortunately, the the river water, the, the water in Bangladesh is, has got a high level of contamination with arsenic. And arsenic comes up from under the soil. The water leaches it out of the surrounding soil, particularly during the flooding sort of periods. And arsenic, we all you know, you always think of arsenic as being the classic poison used in an Agatha Christie movie. Mm-hmm. But as well as being a poison, it is a really potent carcinogen. And exposure to arsenic for a long period of time can increase your risks of getting cancer. And so there's a lot of efforts trying to be um, started to try and understand how the arsenic exposure in rural parts of Bangladesh is linked to the um, to the growing rate of, of of cancer. So in so in Bangladesh, the the average age of people getting cancer is in their forties. It's much much younger than you would imagine in the Western world, um, and this is probably due to the fact that they have these um, contamination events, and and it's probably underreported as well because they don't have in the rural parts of Bangladesh the um, the reporting structures, mm-hmm. the sort of the equivalent of the NHS to record every death that happens and the cause of every death yeah i just want to say this research must be fraught with challenges i mean just methodological challenges but also things that are quite difficult to to grapple and deal with just kind of psychologically as well yeah no there, there are huge challenges to um to, to to doing this kind of work but i think it's really valuable for us to in the west to um to to in to, to try to do something to help um countries that are that are in this elmic the low middle income country bracket that they don't have the facilities to to be able to do some some of the work they don't have funding to fund lots of the investigations the you know to understand their exposures to help their citizens and so i think it's beholden on the richer western countries including the uk to do something about this uh, and we did have um the global challenges research fund which the uk government uh, introduced particularly for this purpose unfortunately that was pulled a few years ago but before that happened we were able to get some money from the global challenges research fund to buy some equipment for um the dakar medical school the dakar medical college in dakar the capital of bangladesh um to try and introduce some facilities so they could start building up some research capability to look at some of these things through measuring um, DNA damage, DNA mutations that were, were in, induced perhaps in, in relation to arsenic. Unfortunately, a part the second part of that, the training element where we were going to ship six 
um, clinicians from Dakar over to to Swansea to learn sort of from 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 us some of the the approaches that they could apply um got hit by covid and unfortunately they were unable to travel so so we've been sending them some information instead which is okay but it's not quite the same thing as them actually getting their hands dirty learning something in our labs here at Swansea University in person's often better almost yeah. always better yeah. um do you ever get critiques by people you know you said that it's good for first world countries western western countries to to go and help people who are less well off but do you ever get you know, criticised for that by saying, well, we still have big problems kind of medically in the field of cancer here and we should be putting our energies in British universities into, you know, the domestic kind of uh, market, I guess. Yeah, I, I, I guess if we were um, focusing all our efforts on helping an overseas country tackle a particular challenge, then that may be a criticism that was valid. I'm, I'm not sure that would be valid. I think that you have to do something where the need is greatest often. But I think in in reality, the well, we're you know lots of people at Swansea University and at other universities in the UK have links with lots of different third world countries, uh, developing countries, mm. countries on the LMIC, the low middle income country list. And I think what they're, the intention of all that is very noble, and it is about upskilling and helping the people in the 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 overseas country to to train their staff to train their students so that they can solve their own problems in time um and by collaborating with um countries in the in the in the in the UK and understanding some of the uh, approaches that they can take and how they might uh, deploy those in their local context mm. uh, is 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 not taking away from tackling the fundamental problem, uh, which would be of relevance to the to the UK population. Well, yeah, as I was well. to say people often will say in response to that that critique is that you're still learning stuff when you go to these yeah. other places that can be deployed at back at home as well. Oh, absolutely. I think that I think that a bit like um, uh, medical students who go and do elective courses where they go to. Uh, overseas countries and spend a couple of months working in a hospital somewhere. They see things in those overseas countries that you wouldn't see in a in a normal hospital here in the UK. And by doing that, they get huge broadening of their experience. And um, uh, and you know, it's a benefit two ways. It's 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 a benefit from that collaborative link to the sort of Western European countries' medical sort of training facility. But it's a benefit to those individual. Uh, medical students because they get to learn about things that they would never usually see in their their day to day job. Let's just talk about a bit, bit more about you specifically, Gareth. You've got a you've got an impressive CV. I think it's fair to say you're, you you know you've got all these uh, organisations that you're part of. With these long words that only took me one take, of course, to say <laughs> in the uh, in the opening of this episode. But um, I mean, tell me a bit more about what what you're involved in, how it's sort of given you a new perspective and changed the way you work. Yeah, so I think the. I think that so in the last three or four years, I've um, taken on some some sort of senior roles, I suppose. But I think this has been part of um, my career has been about getting involved in organisations. So I've been members of different organisations previously, and in the last few years, I've um, got to that position now where I've taken on being president of a, of a few societies. One of them um, is a UK-based DNA mutation society, the UK Environmental Mutagen Society. Uh, I was a member of the UK government's Committee on Mutagenicity uh, 
10 years ago, I joined that committee and then rotated off. And then two years ago, I uh, applied to be the the chair. The, there was a vacancy for the chair of that committee. And I took on that role. And that's quite an important role because it advises UK government departments on the the risks to the, the UK population uh, from exposures to things such as food contaminants and, and other car- carcinogenic and mutagenic threats. So chemicals which can cause cancer or DNA mutation. So these things have, have happened through, I, I guess it's like a, a, a an, an apprenticeship sort of skits, uh, system that I became members of those organisations when I was younger, when I was, mm-hmm. uh, before I became a professor here at Swansea University and then through um, continuing activity and engaging with those, I've now got to the point where they've uh, asked me to, to 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 take on being either president or to chair those um, those those committees. Is, is it strange now being in a leadership role and you look back and think, oh, I was just a, I was just a humble mere member a little while ago? But it's often when you get to the top, it doesn't feel as overwhelming as it as it might have looked when you were a junior person on the committee. It's a strange feeling, isn't it? Yeah, it is. It is strange. I think that. Um, when you're an academic, you're encouraged. When you're a junior academic, you're encouraged to network. Is one th- piece of advice I always give to people mm. is to to you know to to get out there and get yourself known, get yourself involved in lots of organisations, committees, scientific societies, other government bodies, what, whatever is is appropriate to your field. And being a member is great because it gives you the experience of understanding how these things work. And so you do your apprenticeship by spending time working in that organization working on that committee and then when the vacancy comes up to uh to chair or to become president of those societies then as as i as i've done recently t- taken taking on those roles i've actually um looked back and exactly as you just said uh, thought that 10 years ago when i was applying to be a member of those and looking up to the person who was the president of the organization or was chairing the committee thinking wow you know mm. that's that's they they must have really sort of be well respected in their field because they're in that kind of role and so to think that i'm in that role now is is a little bit humbling i think yeah and you were appointed to the committee on uh, mutagenicity by a, a certain man who's been on the front page of my daily telegraph uh, at the beginning of this year uh, a little bit i i do read other papers of course but um the secretary of state, the then secretary of state for health, I assume, Matt Hancock. Yeah, yeah. So I, I I've, I've actually got the letter of appointment uh, on my wall, um, um, not, not because of the controversy that came later, but, but, uh, but the letter from with the, um, the government sort of um, headed paper, and then his signature, it's signing the letter inviting me to become the chair of the committee on mutagenicity was quite a big event for, for me, quite a big event in, in my career. Mm. Uh, unfortunately, I think it was a month after that that he was um, forced to step down because of COVID breaches. And, you know, we've heard all of the things that have happened as well around that recently. Mm. Um, I mean, with with these committees, uh, I, I mean, obviously I'll have to be quite brief here, but firstly, why are they set up in the first place? And in your in your role, what are you doing on them? Because obviously it can't be a full-time job because you also work here and you've got like management roles here. So yeah, what are they for and what do you do? Yeah, so the so the, the committee on mutagenicity that I chair um is one of three committees which advise government on the the safety of of chemicals which which we as UK citizens may come into contact with. So the other two committees are the committee on toxicity. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, and there's a committee on carcinogenicity, which I also sit on as a member because of my role of chairing the the COM committee. And so what we we meet. Um, so the COM um, committee meets uh, three times a year. Uh, we have day long meetings where we go through a packed agenda dealing with different issues and 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 offering an opinion, which then goes to UK government departments, who then enact what they think is the right thing to do. And so some of the things that we might get asked about would be things like a um, a, a, a chemical or an, an, a, a, an agent which has been uh, identified as potentially a risk to human health. So one of the things that we're dealing with at the moment that I think I'm, I'm okay to talk about is uh, the issue of titanium dioxide, which so titanium dioxide has uh, been in foodstuffs and in sunscreen. So people who wear the bright blue sunscreen they put on their nose and other things. There's a lot of titanium dioxide in there, which is very good. It's a very good UV absorber. But there's been suggestion that titanium dioxide, if we were to ingest it, could be a um, a, a carcinogen. It can induce DNA mutations and it could be carcinogenic. And this has been uh, raised as an issue by the European Food Safety Authority, EFSA, uh, who last year introduced a ban on titanium dioxide for, uh, for, for for foodstuffs. Now, there is a bit of controversy around this. And so in the in the COM committee that I chair, we're actually looking at the evidence to try and review the evidence ourselves to come up with our position so that we can inform UK government what we think the situation is with titanium dioxide and whether there should be any kind of restriction on on its on its use. Great. So one nice little case study there to get some sort of idea about what it involves. But obviously, it's a, it's, it's a lot of work, a lot of extra work. Yeah. No, it's a huge amount of work. So, so I mentioned that the COM committee meet three times a year. In between those three meetings, in the last twelve months, we've had three separate meetings which have just been focused on titanium dioxide, and we are in the middle of doing a review now, which is going to take um, a number of the members' time um, over the next couple of months. I should point out that the the B word comes into this a little bit. So there is an impact here on Brexit because it previously the the ruling from the or the the, the decision by the European Food Safety Authority um, would have applied to the whole of the EU, including the UK. But because of Brexit, there is um, a, the opportunity, I, I guess, for the UK to look at this independently and to come to its own decision. So. Brexit has increased the workload a little bit of these UK government advisory committees because they now have to, maybe it's just to ratify a European decision. And often it is the case because you know in the EU they have um, committees which are made up of expert members and they make really good decisions, um, well-informed decisions. And so often the in the UK the 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 equivalent structures are just ratifying what the EU committees have already said, but in some cases there is a difference of opinion, and so there is the opportunity to sort of diverge a little bit. Um, but it does mean everything has to be revisited on a UK basis, and there's a lot of uncertainty around how this um, happens in practice because the these new rules only came in in January, I think, of 2021, and so we're only a year or two into this new regime where we're having to revisit some of these things that have uh, previously been done by the European Union's um, organisations. So being nice and impartial here on the whole 
Brexit and European Union issue. You could say that that's giving that, that that's giving opportunities for for Britain to you know in the, in that sort of slogan to take back control. But obviously, it's also a lot of extra work because it's just putting a lot more in the plates on the plates of people here. Yeah, I think you know I think there there are genuinely some um, some some opportunities. I think that in some cases you could argue there's some unnecessary duplication, but there are opportunities. One of the one of the opportunities that 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 I think we could grasp um, would be that. So I'm so in a lot of the research that we do in um, in Swansea in the in 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 the research group that I'm in is to look for animal alternatives because a lot of the testing of whether something is a carcinogen, whether it causes DNA mutations, is carried out in in rodents, and they're not very good models for studying human mutation or human carcinogenicity. Uh, because we're not big mice, you know, we're, we're very different physiologically, anatomically, and so what we do a lot of here at Swansea University is is develop alternative in vitro, so cell based approaches to the those sorts of questions. Um, and one of the opportunities with the divergence from from the EU around safety assessment of these kinds of chemicals is that we could really accelerate that three R's, the sort of animal alternative um, agenda. And you know, in the EU, they're very keen to to to, to reduce animal testing as well. Um, they, you know, it was the European Union that introduced the cosmetics ban, so animals couldn't be used in testing cosmetics. That came from an EU directive. It took about 10, 15 years to to come into into sort of being. So they want to drive this this agenda around reduced animal testing, but we, as a as a consequence of Brexit, could even accelerate that faster if we chose to. Go back to you in particular, uh, and the way in which you got into this area of research. You you told us before we started recording actually that you studied under somebody very interesting uh, when you were an undergraduate, didn't you? Yeah. So um, so I did a I did a, a biophysics degree at King's College London in the late eighties. And I was fortunate now, I didn't realise at the time, but looking back, I was fortunate that I was actually taught by um, Morris Wilkins. So Morris Wilkins is the third man of the double helix. He's the forgotten man. So people often talk about the identification of the structure of DNA, the, the double helix structure, that it was discovered by Watson and Crick. And it was Watson and Crick who wrote the paper, but they couldn't have done it without... Um, Morris Wilkins and Rosalind Franklin, who were based at King's College London. And when they were awarded the Nobel Prize, it was Watson, Crick and Wilkins who got the Nobel Prize. Unfortunately, Rosalind Franklin had died before the Nobel Prize was awarded and you can't get the Nobel Prize posthumously. Um, so she missed out, even though she probably did most of the work because she was actually the person who was generating lots of the data. Yeah, so, so Morris was a really interesting character. He... Um, Worked on the Manhattan Project during the war, developing the atom bomb in the, um, in America. He was a physicist. Came back to the UK afterwards, and I think was was affected by the, the the atomic bombs that were dropped on Japan, and moved away from anything to do with um, atomic physics to looking at studying biomolecules. As hence his interest in in the DNA structure, mm. and he started getting really interested in bioethics, understanding. You know, not just how, you know, whether whether we can do things, but whether we should do certain types of research. And it was a module on bioethics that he taught me on. And uh, yeah, he was he was fascinating. He was he was probably eighty then when he was when he was teaching 
in the, the sort of late 1980s. But um, yeah, fascinating man. That's dedication. Uh, and when did you come to Swansea? So I um, came to do a PhD here in the mid-1990s. I think it was 93. Um, uh, and I came here because there was someone based here at Swansea University called Professor Jim Parry, who was an international expert in the DNA mutation world. And so I saw an opportunity to apply for a PhD. I was working in Cardiff University at the time. Um, and I jumped at the chance to to come down and, and visit him and apply for this PhD. And I was lucky enough to be offered it. And I worked with him for 10 years or so until he until he retired. And he um, had a, an international profile in terms of being... Um, involved in lots of different aspects of understanding how DNA mutations were caused and the consequence of how we look at the risk that that poses to the human population, which is something that I've continued, um, as well as a couple of colleagues of mine in the same um, research group. We we all studied under him and we're keeping his, um, his, his research on go. We're sort of building on his shoulders, I guess. Great. Now, you might have mentioned this already, but genomics in general, um, I know you work on that. Uh, can you just tell us what it is? Because I must say, I don't, I don't have any idea, really. Yeah, so, so genomics mainly means um, sequencing of the human genome. So, uh, the, so the Human Genome Project, which completed about 20 years ago, took about 10, 15 years with hundreds and hundreds of labs around the world trying to piece together the, the sequence of the 3 billion bases that are included in the in every cell of our bodies and now genomics because of technological advances we can study we can identify the genome of a, of a human within days if not weeks so, so what took 10 15 years previously now can be done in weeks and so so this is really powerful to be able to understand the origin of lots of different diseases to understand the role of mutation because obviously by studying the whole genome you can identify where these mutations um are arising and the you can describe them you can quantify them so genomics is a really powerful tool for understanding disease uh, and, and undoubtedly will be really important in terms of early cancer diagnosis in the future but the main issue for it being deployed in some kind of um uh diagnostic approach at the moment is it's still relatively expensive that even though the costs have plummeted uh so the the human genome project costs billions of pounds um and now a genome can be sequenced for thousands of pounds so the costs have come down remarkably but if you imagine that uh through our beloved nhs if we tried to use genomics to look for early cancer in a screening kind of process, you'd bankrupt the NHS overnight because it is. it would cost trillions, if not whatever the one above trillions is, mm -hmm. gazillions maybe. Um, <laughs> uh, so it, 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 is, it is enormously um, important technology that will revolutionise medicine in, in the future and is starting to do so now in a targeted way. But it, it is still relatively costly to be rolled out at a population level. You think it's going to be the gold standard in the future, don't you? Yeah, I think so. I think in the future. So the so um, I'm you know lots of the the research that I do uses alternative approaches, and I, and I'm kind of writing myself out of a job by by saying that we won't need to do any of these things in the future because genomics will come in and replace them when the costs become. A little bit more achievable, and I think that they're already on a you know the 
the decline in the cost uh, is 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 remarkable over the past 15 years and i think in 10 years time it will be used for all sorts of different purposes and we will be um we will be regularly sequenced um i think the the issue with with the issue with thinking of this as just being the the sort of the, the answer to everything is that you know, we're born with a genome which starts mutating the day after we're born so every cell in our bodies is mutating every second of every day we're picking up mutations most of them just mean nothing they aren't in important regulatory parts of the genome so they won't be noticed they won't have any consequence at all and it's only those um occasional mutations that occur that um could have a consequence they could increase your risk of developing cancer or they could in, they could change the function of a protein and give you another type of disease uh so using genomics is fraught with some difficulty because our DNA is constantly evolving. It's not designed to stay the same. With all this knowledge and understanding at your fingertips, uh, and particularly with the, the the stuff about carcinogens and knowing what causes cancer, do you still, regardless, sometimes do things or eat things or behave in certain ways that you know is probably, you know, in inverted commas, not good for you, even though you've got all the info? Because, I mean, I, I, I should say not from this university, but I've known kind of medical types who are heavy smokers for example yeah no so um yeah the answer is yes <laughs> um but but i think i think it's important to remember that the the our exposure to carcinogens is very much based on the dose the actual level that we're exposed to so you know, I wouldn't advocate smoking to anybody, but if someone smoked a cigarette one day, they don't increase their risk of getting lung cancer. You know, that is a really, you know, you have to you have to be a smoker for 30, 40 years until you start to see the rise in the risks of of lung cancer. We have lots of protective mechanisms in our in our bodies to help repair the damage that's done by exposure to carcinogens. And so it's that balance between um the amount that you're exposed to uh, and the time that you're exposed to that for against our protective mechanisms. And so if you have a, you know, a, a barbecue and you eat um, barbecued food, I often do that. I don't think twice about it. It's not increasing my risk necessarily. If I ate barbecued food three times a day for 20 years... You'd, then, w- you'd worry a bit. Yeah, I would be worried, yes. So so I think that's yeah, definitely... I think it's it's all about moderation, that's, you know, having... having exposure to things you know sunbathing you know i I like nothing more than going on holiday and having a walk around and you know getting exposed to some nice warm sunshine in the mediterranean you don't sit sit there worrying about it particularly i I don't worry about it at all because you know i do use sunscreen um having having um having uh lost my my hair when i was in my 30s when I had children, um, I think that I regularly apply sunscreen to my head because I think I burn otherwise. But I'm wor- more worried there about burning rather than getting uh, getting skin cancer because uh, I think low dose low dose exposures to even carcinogens uh, is not something necessarily to worry about. And I assume that the the same principle applies then for drinking alcohol as well. Yeah, so al- so alcohol is an interesting. So so alcohol. Um, so when we drink alcohol our livers metabolize alcohol into a compound called acetaldehyde and acetaldehyde is a carcinogen alcohol isn't necessarily a carcinogen but acetaldehyde is 
But again, low dose exposure to alcohol and acid aldehyde doesn't really increase your risk. I, I really like the anecdote, or not the anecdote, the sort of scientific evidence which suggests that there are compounds in red wine, um, polyphenol compounds called resveratrol. And resveratrol is very good at reducing DNA damage. It reduces inflammation. It protects our cells. And so uh, drinking red wine in particular, moderately, um, would actually probably on balance have a health benefit over a health risk. It's all about getting that balance right. That is what I like to hear. <laughs> very much so. Listen, Gareth, there's lots of people who'll be listening to you and thinking this is really cool and important work, um, particularly if they're young people and they want to maybe get into this line of work. What advice would you give them? So I think um, I think that so so people who are already studying at university who are interested, uh, I think that there are plenty of opportunities to uh, look for courses which um, can can teach you more about you know genomics around um, aspects of how carcinogens work uh, you know I'm, I'm a geneticist by training and so i think um having a background in genetics is really useful for the cancer genetics sort of side of the research that's that that i'm interested in uh, so i think that there are plenty of um undergraduate degrees which focus on that there's plenty of master's degrees for people who've done a first degree who want to maybe specialize a bit more uh, and of course, you know, the, in science, we often are, are encouraged to carry out PhDs to to really push home the sort of uh, area, to, to become an expert in an area. And so there are plenty of um, universities around the world, but plenty in the UK who focus on things to do with cancer genetics, who, who are interested in studying carcinogens. And so looking out for opportunities uh, to, to carry out a PhD um, would, 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 be a good, would be good advice, I think, I would give people. Uh, it's been a really interesting conversation, Gareth, and I've learned a lot, so thank you very much. Um, if you want to find out more about Gareth's research, you can visit his staff profile page on Swansea University's website. To find out more about this podcast and Swansea University's research, visit swansea.ac.uk forward slash research. That's all from us today. Thank you for listening, and thank you once again to my guest, Professor Gareth Jenkins. If you've enjoyed this episode, please follow us. I'm Sam Blacksland, and that was Exploring Global Problems from Swansea University.